through the hallways of academia and on the face of the moon the footprints of conquest haven't left us any room to say Greetings and welcome to the 28th edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, August 2nd, 2018. This is Sekhmet Shiawal, resident female separatist and radical lesbian feminist. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics except for separatist feminism is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. This month we're talking about Mother Earth and the power of women to protect her, as industry and development prove fatal to her existence. In today's podcast, WLRN speaks with women who dedicate their lives to seeking and spreading knowledge of sustainable living. Our first interview is with Susan Griffin, author of Woman in Nature, The Roaring Inside Her, a book released in 1978 that is largely believed to mark the beginning of a body of thought called ecofeminism. This politics seeks to explore the relationships between Western male-driven civilization and its treatment of women in the natural world. WLRN is honored that Ms. Griffin granted us an interview for this edition on women in the environment. That interview is coming up after our world news segment, so stay tuned. In our second interview segment, I speak with Lierre Keith, a writer, small farmer, and longtime radical feminist activist. She is the author of six books, including The Vegetarian Myth, Food, Justice, and Sustainability, which has been called the most important ecological book of this generation. She is co-author with Derek Jensen and Eric McVeigh of Deep Green Resistance, Strategy to Save the Planet. She's been arrested six times. You can read more about Lierre at www.lierrekeith.com. In today's commentary, Thistle shares her views on women in the environmental movement. As always, we'll start today's edition with woman-related international news, as presented by Maya. During the month of July, WLRN was made aware of the deplatforming of two prominent feminists, Max Deshu and Nina Pali. Deshu took part in the Dyke March in San Francisco in June along with 10 other lesbians, highlighting the plight of the L in the LGBTQ movement. As a result, trans activists complained to the organizers of the Modern Witches Conference set to take place in San Francisco this coming October. The event organizers in an unprecedented move in these cases of public deplatforming have agreed to a public discussion that includes well-known community organizer Starhawk about Deshu's deplatforming from the event. Event organizers wrote the following form letter to the large group of feminists and allies who wrote to them in protest of the disinvitation. Quote, Thank you for expressing your concerns and sharing your experience. We are working on organizing a community dialogue with the help of community leaders, including Starhawk, to discuss this issue. 
we will inform all interested parties when we have a date and container confirmed. We understand that there is opportunity for growth and healing here." Unquote. On July 23rd, Deshu issued a public statement in response to the form letter that included the following. Quote, I have not called for a boycott of the witches' confluence, neither will I bow down to tyrannical thuggery such as was unleashed in the past month. I could see that the organizers of the witches' confluence had had their hand forced. Our communications up until Wednesday's email announcing my no-platforming had been respectful and showed sensitivity. The group who had worked hard on their event were facing it being destroyed and yielded under pressure. They are not alone in that since many, many people have been afraid to speak up in this climate of intimidation. The escalating hostility has to be addressed in person with respectful ground rules and elders of various tribes present. Things have to move off of this social media frenzy and a stop put to lies, slander and defamation. Ms. Deshu is a scholar of women's history and founder of the Suppressed Histories Archive. Also in the United States, cartoonist and filmmaker Nina Pali was recently deplatformed in her hometown of Urbana, Illinois. Ms. Pali is an animator and free culture activist. She was the artist and often the writer of the comic strips Nina's Adventures and Fluff, but most of her recent work has been in animation. She is perhaps best known for creating the animated feature film Sita Sings the Blues. WLRN reporter Thistle Peterson caught up with Ms. Pali on the phone to learn more about her recent deplatforming. You were invited and then you were disinvited. Can you just tell us what happened? Yes, there's a local cafe called Arcadia. They wanted to do an event with me. I suggested, you know, an art salon where we showed a film. So they reached out to me and we planned it and they made a Facebook event page. And then a day later, a handful of people started saying, Nina Paley is a transphobe and I will never come to your cafe again if you have her here. And then the cafe caved a day later. Wow, so that's all it took was a handful of people. Are they local people? Yep, although it grew to non-local people as well. And interestingly, one of the first people to do this bullying identified herself as the chair of gender and women's studies at the University of Illinois. So the chair of gender and women's studies went out of her way to no platform a local feminist woman artist. On the grounds that your art is hateful towards trans people? No, it had nothing to do with my art. It was just she declared me transphobic and that was enough for her. It had absolutely nothing to do with the event. The event had nothing to do with this. She decided I was a transphobe. And then when someone called her on it, she said, I'm the chair of gender and women's studies. I know what I'm talking about. Have women been writing to Arcadia and letting them know or calling them? Or is there any sort of pushback from our side? It's hard because Arcadia disappeared the whole event page where there was discussion. And then they published a cancellation notice and people started commenting on that. And they've been disappearing the comments from that. And some people tried to leave reviews where they commented and they've been disappearing those comments. So Arcadia is doing everything to just vanish any kind of feedback that they're getting about it, except, you know, five-star reviews from people that say how wonderful they are for, quote, listening to the community. Are local media covering this at all? 
They are not. I've been trying to get some local media coverage and it's been slow. I've also been trying to get another venue, but honestly, I'm really quite tired. I'm recovering from surgery and this wasn't something I set up. It was something they set up. Also, I don't know how I'm going to get the information of the 200 people that said they were interested in this event since they disappeared the page. So I have no way of contacting them if I do get another venue. Have you gone over to the cafe and spoken with them in person or anything like that? No, I mean, I know that one of the people, the, the cafe is, it's run by more than one person. I know one of them wasn't too thrilled with this, but she is just completely unprepared for this. So she caved pretty easily. And the other ones, I think, actually believe um, that if somebody is declared a transphobe, then like judge, jury, and executioner, there's no recourse. What's interesting is that my trans friends think this is appalling. If you say anything critical about modern gender politics or modern gender identity, they will say that you hate trans people and you're a bigot. And so you can play everything right. You can be like super nice, as I have been. I'm not interested in fighting with them. I just want people to know what has become former women's studies departments, that women's studies has turned into gender studies, and this is what they are doing. Let's say there are four partners in it, right? One of them was like, eh, I don't really like this bullying. And the other three have drunk the Kool-Aid. I think they're true believers. People are taking note, right? A lot of people get in touch with me in private and say, that's really bad. And in fact, some people who have sort of noted that I've talked about some of these issues for the last couple years have said, oh, now I understand what you're talking about. Right? Like they never really got when I would say these things happened, but you know, now there are local people that wanted to come to this thing and they saw what happened even, you know, before Arcadia disappeared all the evidence of it or tried to. And they're like, oh, now I see. Yeah, this is bad. People are not pleased with these tactics. There are people in this town that they just want a discussion, right? Like I don't need people to agree with me. If I say, if a person has a penis, he's a man, someone else can say, no, if a person with a penis says they're a woman, they're a woman. And it's like, okay, you know, like you can hold that, you know, opinion and I can hold mine, although it's not an opinion, but um, you probably don't think yours is an opinion either. I'm a grown up and I'm capable of disagreeing with people and interacting with some respect. And that used to be a primary value in this town, particularly among liberals. It's changing, and I think some people are aghast at watching it change and do not like these tactics. So the trans activists, or whatever you want to call them, the, you know, the gender studies people, they are not endearing themselves. They're scaring people. In situations like this, people are terrified to become a target themselves, so they keep quiet as long as they can. But uh, they are not endeared to the populace at the moment. Is there anything women can do to support you and what's going on in Urbana? Spread the word, tell the truth. Keep on telling the truth. Last week, New Zealand passed legislation granting victims of domestic violence 10 days of paid leave for them to move out of their partner's home, find new homes, and protect themselves and their children. While it is not a preventive measure, MP Jan Logie, who used to work at a women's shelter before coming into politics, said, quote, 
Part of this initiative is getting a whole of society response. We don't just leave it to police but realize that we all have a role in helping victims. It is also about changing the cultural norms and saying we all have a stake in this and it is not okay. Unquote. Women are not required to prove that they are victims and they are also entitled to assistance from their workplace in ensuring their safety such as changing of work location, having their identity protected online and so on. At present, the Philippines is the only other country to have passed such a law at a national level. Earlier this month, a 10-year-old girl, Dika Dahir Noor, who was a victim of female genital mutilation, bled to death in Somalia. Although female genital mutilation or FGM is constitutionally illegal in Somalia, conservative forces prevent lawmakers from passing laws that adequately punish those who are guilty of the practice. Besides, because of the utmost secrecy of the practice, it is hard to have an estimate of how many girls die because of female genital mutilation. Because of the absence of information, activists find it hard to convince people of the harms of the practice. According to the World Health Organization, around 98% of women and girls in Somalia are cut. According to UNICEF, a vast majority of girls are cut between the age of 5 to 9 and two-thirds undergo infibulation, the most severe form of the procedure where a part of the labia is cut and repositioned to narrow down the vaginal opening. Activists are hoping that the evidence and coverage of Dika's death will debunk myths in Somalia about FGM being safe. A rolling hunger strike is happening in the Port Isabel Service Processing Center, one of the many locations where immigrants have been detained by the US government. Port Isabel has not made public the number of people it is detaining, but one woman said that each women's dorm has 25 people in it and there are 5 dorms. The women were protesting because they were not being allowed to speak to their children even over the phone. Many women had barely spoken to their children once over the entire course of being detained. Although the deadline for reuniting children under the age of 5 had passed, many women were still not reunited with their children. Women who were striking were threatened with solitary confinement. Women in the detention camp are barely given any food. Many of them show signs of anxiety and PTSD, and rules forbid them even from hugging or sitting on each other's pets. At least 22 men in Chennai, India, raped and sexually assaulted a 12-year-old girl with a hearing disorder repeatedly over the course of the last seven months. These men included security guards, plumbers and elevator operators in the apartment complex where she lived. According to her statement, the elevator operator, a 66-year-old man, first assaulted her in the elevator when she was coming back from school. A few days later, he brought two other drunk men who filmed themselves raping her. Over the course of the next seven months, they repeatedly sedated her using injections, drug-laced soft drinks or a powder that they made her sniff before they raped her in empty apartments in the complex. They blackmailed the child into silence by threats of violence and of releasing the videos. Only 18 men have been arrested so far. At the Newhall Women's Prison in Wakefield, Yorkshire, a 55-year-old trans-identified male has been charged with committing four sexual offences against the women in the prison. The offences took place between September and November last year. The accused has been moved to a male prison and is due to appear in the Leeds Crown Court in August. The Ministry of Justice guidance said that in the great majority of cases, transgender prisoners are allowed to experience the system in the gender in which they identify and attempts to undermine the system are rare. In Kolkata, India, in a first, a domestic workers association was given trade union status by the government. 
Huge numbers of lower class and lower caste women across the country work as domestic workers or maids in what is known as the unorganized sector. This means that their working conditions are not assured by law. They work long hours and without holidays for very low wages and are often faced by various humiliating rules such as invasive security checks, not having access to bathrooms, unpaid maternity leave and almost no information about their employers. As a result, physical and sexual violence is rampant. Although laws regarding sexual harassment in the workplace are supposed to include the unorganized sector, rarely do cases get reported or justice ensured. This trade union could be a great first step for millions of vulnerable women across the country to demand their rights. The Lesbian Rights Alliance wrote an open letter to Stonewall, the gay rights organization, demanding that the L be taken out of LGBTQ. They wrote against the organization saying that trans-identified males could be lesbians and the erasure of lesbians in the LGBT community, which came to the forefront in recent instances of violence against lesbians in various pride marches, the San Francisco Dyke March, and the silencing and deplatforming of women who spoke up against transgender ideology that puts lesbians at risk. The letter had 135 signatories. The Trafficking of Persons Prevention, Protection and Rehabilitation Bill 2018 was introduced by the Women and Child Development Minister Mrs. Maneka Gandhi in the Indian Lok Sabha on the 18th of July. While the bill recognizes trafficking in forced labor, begging and marriages, it omits sexual exploitation and prostitution. If the bill is passed, the millions of vulnerable girls and women who get trafficked into the sex industry will have access to none of the benefits of the law and pimps, chawns and other men who benefit from the industry will continue to get off scot-free. This is in spite of India being a signatory of the UN protocol to end trafficking in persons, especially women and children, which calls on countries to include sexual exploitation and prostitution of others, that is pimping, as a form of human trafficking. On the other hand, an archaic law continues to punish women for public soliciting. A recent spike of sexual violence in India has been caused by the clear influence of pornography. In Uttarakhand, five boys aged between 9 and 14 were arrested for gang raping an 8-year-old girl. They planned the crime after watching a pornographic video on an elder brother's phone. Earlier this month, four boys aged between 6 and 10 gang raped a 4-year-old girl after watching a porn video. In Haryana, a priest raped over 120 women and filmed his crimes, which he used later to blackmail his victims. A student of class 9 in Bihar was gang-raped by three of her classmates, who filmed the crime and shared it amongst their schoolmates, and later a few teachers and the principal of her school. She was then blackmailed and raped by the men who had seen the video, including the principal. What is becoming increasingly clear is that pornography as a form of media is produced, distributed and consumed by rapists and sexually exploitative men. A government-sponsored shelter home for vulnerable girls and rape victims in Bihar, India was found to be guilty of the organized sexual exploitation of its inmates. Medical examination has revealed that at least 24 inmates, all minors and one as young as seven, were repeatedly raped, burnt and physically tortured. Many of them were sedated with drugs before being raped. After this was found out, all of them were rescued and shifted to a different shelter. However, the trauma of the experience has affected them severely. Many of them are trying to aggressively inflict injuries upon themselves and have become suicidal. From one of the statements, it has been found that one of the girls at the shelter may even have been murdered and buried in the premises. Eleven people, including government officials, have been arrested so far. 
investigations are ongoing. In Rajasthan, India, a 15-year-old girl killed herself after she was gang raped by three men. The police only registered her complaint two days after she committed suicide as one of the accused was the son of the vice chairman of the municipal council of the town. Due to political pressure, there has been absolutely no mainstream media coverage of the crime and justice is unlikely to be ensured. Currently, the victim's friend and the main witness in the case are receiving death threats from goons hired by the accused. East Turkestan, currently occupied by China, is home to many ethnic minorities, including the Muslim Uyghur Turks. Chinese authorities have oppressed Muslims in the region for a long time and have found various ways of humiliating them, including forcing women to take off their hijabs, forcing them to eat pork and alcohol, and so on. Now, police forces have been forcefully cutting the skirts of Muslim Uyghur women on the streets in public with the justification that their skirts are too long. In Indonesia, a 15-year-old girl was sentenced to six months in jail for having an abortion after her brother raped her repeatedly. He admitted to raping his sister at least eight times and threatening to physically harm her if she refused his sexual advances, but was given only two years in prison. In Indonesia, all cases of abortion are illegal except those where the mother's life is at risk. Women can be sentenced to up to four years in jail for inducing an abortion and abortion providers can go to jail for over four years. Although there is not enough data, researchers estimate that about two million induced abortions occur each year in the country and that deaths from unsafe abortion represent 14 to 16 percent of all maternal deaths in Southeast Asia. The final draft of the National Register of Citizens was released earlier this week in India, meant to weed out illegal immigrants from Assam, most of whom are Muslims who had come to the country from Bangladesh during war years. 40 lakh people were left out of the list for failure to prove their citizenship and are now at the risk of forced deportation. Large numbers of women in rural areas who do not receive education and whose families did not register their births, do not own any land and often do not have marriage certificates. These women have become unable to prove their citizenship in any way, even though the government has announced a buffer period for people who were left out to contest their exclusion. This means that women in Assam may soon face a situation very similar to those in the US at present. In a village in Uttar Pradesh, India, a woman was abducted by four men from her house and then gang-raped. In a horrific turn of events, she was then paraded naked throughout the village. While being paraded, she was also badly thrashed. She is currently being treated at a local hospital. The Supreme Court of India on Monday, 30th July, said that the age-old practice of female genital mutilation violated the right to privacy of women, adding that women don't live their lives just for their marriages and husbands. The court supports a petition seeking a ban on female genital mutilation, which is still a common religious practice amongst the Daudi Bora community. shops and morning streets in the blue and silent sunrise but night is the cathedral where we recognize the sign we strangers know each other now as part of a whole design 
That was Suzanne Vega with her song, Gypsy. In today's first interview, Thistle speaks with Susan Griffin. Poet, essayist, and playwright Susan Griffin was born in 1943 in Los Angeles, California. An early awareness of the horrors of World War II and her childhood in the High Sierras had an enduring influence on her work, which includes poetry, prose, and mixed genre collections. A playwright and radical feminist philosopher, Griffin has also published two books in a proposed trilogy of social autobiography. Her work considers ecology, politics, and feminism, and is known for its innovative hybrid form. A Chorus of Stories, The Private Life of War, 
published in 1982, was a finalist for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Award, won a Babra Award, and was a New York Times notable book. We're very excited to be able to broadcast excerpts from the interview Thistle conducted with Ms. Griffin on July 30th about her life, her work, and ecofeminism. Welcome to WLRN, Susan Griffin. Hi, glad to be here. What are some highlights of your life's work that illustrate ecofeminism? And what is ecofeminism for our listeners who have maybe heard that term but are not too familiar? Let's start with defining ecofeminism. In the first place, let me define feminism a little differently than people are using it now. And I'm I'm so happy that so many young women are calling themselves feminists, and that's terrific. I don't I'm not I don't want in any way to be critical of that. But we used it in a slightly different way during the second wave of the feminist movement. Those of us who were who who were in that, and we we made a distinction between women's <coughs> liberation and feminism. Women's liberation is and was about providing political and economic equality to to women, which, you know, we we had a lot less of then. We have more of it now, but we still don't really have equality. Look how many women are in the Senate, and, you know, we couldn't even elect a a woman as president. But so I'm completely in favor of women's liberation. But feminism was a little bit more radical, in fact, because feminism advocated not only making women equal to men, but changing the society in general, transforming it according to what are considered feminine values but are really human values, caring, cooperative, collaborative. The, the values, the characteristics that are often you know, said, said to be feminine, but they're human characteristics, and the, the, the society, though, is not governed by those in general. It's governed more by competition, ruthlessness, that idea might make right rather than cooperating. So the feminism then, we defined it as transforming society according to these more humane, caring values. And so how is feminism connected to the environmental? To to the environment, exactly. Yeah, good question. Well, I was one of the first people to look at that connection, but uh, my book came out um, in 19... 78, I believe, but uh, just a few years later, uh, Carolyn Merchant's book, The Death of Nature, came out, and uh, she, we were working on our books at the same time, and then there was a French feminist named Francois Dobun, and she actually coined the term ecofeminism. She wrote a famous article called Ecofeminisme et Marc, meaning uh, ou Marc, and that meaning, you know, ec- choose ecofeminism or death, you know, that's the choice. In stark terms, so she turned out to be more right than you could ever think of then. But we, uh, her books were not available. You know, this wasn't the age of the internet. There was no internet. There's no way that we could find her books, get her books in California. I suppose that, I suppose there were some French students who brought them back from Paris, but I didn't have. They weren't available to me. But um, the title alone was very inspiring. Uh, however, I had begun my work before I even knew about her work. So it's interesting that sometimes a movement like that, an intellectual movement, sort of begins in, in various different places through different people who haven't even read each other's work and haven't haven't heard of each other. It's sort of an idea whose time has come, what they would say. So the, the, the connection I made was that 
in, in Woman in Nature was that women are derogated in the same way that nature is derogated, that we're considered... In fact, one of the, the, the ways that women are derogated is to say we are closer to the earth. That's also said about people of color, by the way. They're closer to the earth. There was a famous politician, uh, his name was George something, and he uh, actually said Mexicans are better at picking fruit. He was in, during the organization, it was a period when the farm labor movement was being organized. He said Mexicans are better at picking fruit because they're built closer to the ground. <laughs> so, you know, idiotic. But but that's what we were contending with in that period. And the idea is that women are more sensual, more emotional, closer to the earth, and therefore irrational. And, of course, along with that attitude towards women is the attitude towards nature, that nature doesn't know what's good for it, just like a woman, that nature should just be submissive, that nature needs to be controlled and ordered around by men, and generally white, what is meant by that is white men. So that can give you sort of the bare bones of, of what ecofeminism, how it started. Yeah. And yet, you know, we do have these cycles in our bodies, in our female bodies, that link us to nature. So when is it a good thing for women to be associated with nature, and when is it a bad thing to for us to be associated with nature. Oftentimes, there's a sort of knee-jerk reaction that an ecofeminist is saying that women aren't like nature. No, that's not what I was saying, and that's not what most ecofeminists are saying. We are like nature, but so are men. And that nature doesn't lack intelligence. Nature is highly intelligent. And that women are closer to nature. Yes, we are, generally. Not all women, of course. We know there are women who who violate the environment, who advocate violating it, you know, that that's, that goes without saying. But as a, as a sort of female culture, what what the art of housewifery is and raising children places you much closer to nature. And that's a sacred knowledge. It's a very important knowledge. The problem is that that's been used as a way to oppress us and to say we're inferior. It was used more in that way in the decades when the second wave of feminism got started, but it is still used now. And the whole kind of idea that female sexuality has to be controlled is reflected in uh, laws against abortion, uh, now even laws against contraception. Women being closer to nature represent a force that has to be controlled just in the way that those who who don't believe in global warming and and who feel that human beings have to control have to have power over nature rather than working with nature. They they, they also feel that that nature is irrational and a, and a threat. And there's you know it's 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 full of core literature of the 19th century and some in the 20th century too. That nature is a terrible danger as are women who don't obey men's commands. So that's what ecofeminism is about. It's not about saying women aren't close to nature. Saying we are, and nature is intelligent, and men are close to nature too. They just don't know it. They just deny it. Do you think it's useful to think of the earth as female and that it's men's civilization and resource extraction industry that's, quote, raping the earth, and why or why not? The earth is both male and female, but that doesn't mean that the earth is both male and female in the sense 
in the socially constructed definitions we have of masculine and feminine, those are those are fantasies. You know, it, the people you know, do they fit them? Not, not the people I know. I know men who have characteristics that are more feminine than some of the women I know who seem more masculine. So they're, they're imposed ideas of what gender should be, but not actual gender. Well, is it useful... To think, oh, to think of nature as a female, and yeah, uh, I don't think so. and that I don't and that it's so. like men's industry that's raping the earth. No, you know, you often hear in the environmental movement that the earth is being raped. You know, the first argument that anybody can make with that is that we have people like Margaret Thatcher, and I'm sure there are people in the Trump administration who are gleefully destroying regulations that that, that try to re- protect uh, the environment, who are women. Women are perfectly capable of being dissociated from nature. What is true is that the feminine values and feminine practice is closer to nature because we we menstruate, uh, we give birth, we nurture families, we take care of feeding families. We we understand the material material life, and we to some extent feminine culture uh, celebrates and, and worships material life and sees it as full of spirit and intelligence. So the attitude is associated with the idea of, of male superiority and masculine superiority, but it's not down the line that every man uh, thinks in that way, nor does every woman think in a way that is uh, harmonious with nature. What role does feminism have to play in the environmental movement? Well, I think uh, one of the roles is to bridge, to, to form a bridge between people who are in favor of women's rights, which is which are really human rights. And and in fact we should form a bridge with all people who are who are fighting for, for human rights, people of color, people from other nations, the the gay world. That is a very important coalition to form. But then we can also form a coalition with people who are fighting to preserve nature. But it's another avenue, another very very provocative and creative way to understand the dilemma we're in. I can't lay out specific tactics, nor do I think one should, but thinking about something, the way you picture it, the way you imagine it, is crucial. Those kind of shifts are crucial. We've been suffering from a terrible plague of anti-intellectualism in our culture in the last, well, almost since the founding of the country. There were there were parties that were anti-intellectual that associated intellectualism with aristocracy. And what it does is it deprives social change movements of, of creative thought. We need creative thought. Shifting the way we think is terribly important. Shifting our metaphors are, is terribly important. And that kind of shift in thinking and shift in imagery precedes every major social movement. It's part of every social movement, and we shouldn't underestimate its value. So is there anything you'd like to say to our WLRM listeners? A lot of our listeners are younger and mm-hmm. are radical feminists and young lesbians who are really coming out in a world that is unfriendly towards lesbians. Is there anything you'd like to say to our our listeners to help them on their journey, help them on? Sure. Yeah. 
one thing is keep getting together with others. You can survive a lot if you're doing it in a in with people who are who see the way you see and who will you know lend each other mutual support. That's I can't emphasize enough. The whole feminist movement came out of these small group meetings between women. You know, and we'd start out, oh, you know, I I I had I worked all day and then I had to come home and I cooked the meal and I did all the dishes and, and I put the baby to bed and, and you know, he sits around and does nothing, you know. So so we had that sort of complaint. Then people started talking about having been raped and it's like it's like the Me Too movement. You know, in the Me Too movement women started talking to each other and the truth came out. And then as a group, they were much more forceful in creating change. That's the same thing with gay rights from the very beginning. You know, if you can, if you come out as a lesbian, have your, your, your friends who are lesbians with you to support you in that. This is, this is just terribly important. And at the same time, you know, read and think. Understand the background of the oppression, the history of the oppression. You know, understand the fact that, you know, right-wing movements are often homophobic. And why is that? Ask yourself these questions. You know, people in my generation have provided some answers. I mean, one answer that, that I have, have is that um, gender is, a, that our ideas of gender, our rigid ideas of gender, what is a man, what is a woman, that, you know, you're either one or the other and you can't be in between. These are very rigid ideas that, in fact, in the end, are used to control nature, to, to give a false sense of control, because the way we define masculinity, which is not what biological masculinity is, is a control device, that men are strong and they'll take care of everything and they understand more deeply and that we all depend on this sort of division between men and women and, men to, and we depend on men to control reality and that's how we'll survive. So these ideas about gender are not true. They're not held up scientifically. They're not held up by any branch of science, anthropology, genetics, physiology. And so it's really important to change your own internal thinking in this way. It's fine to just have sort of blanket rebellion. I reject everything I've been taught sort of thing. But it's more effective even in raising your own spirit if you know precisely how foolish and wrong these concepts that are so oppressive are. It's not only that they're oppressive, they're really wrong. You mentioned biological masculinity. Is there any biological basis for gender? And can there be such a thing as positive gender? Gender, by definition, is a, well, it depends on how you're defining. If you're defining it biologically, then then it is a biological difference. But the way it's used in political discourse now is that it is a socially constructed set of ideas. So it's not based on biology. And it's important to make a distinction between biological masculinity and femininity and socially constructed masculinity and femininity. Because when you make that distinction, you're able to look and say, oh, this can be transformed. This can be changed. This is not the way people were born. This is not the way we're supposed to be. There's mm-hmm. something in us that needs to be expressed that this is constraining and repressing this set of ideas. You see what I mean? I mean, 
um, you, you're you're a girl. I you know when I was a kid, I'd get home and I put on my blue jeans. Now girls can wear blue jeans to school, which is great. I put them on and climb trees and run around just like a boy. And so did a lot of my girlfriends at that age. You know, um, that's that's who we were. Then suddenly we're supposed to wear dresses and and petticoats. I mean. You know, and that's because society told us to do that. If you understand these ideas are uh, not based on reality, they're based on other power structures, uh, you can liberate yourself internally from feeling that you're not being the way you're supposed to be. And the other thing you can do is you can form a relationship and a bond with other movements. The same socially constructed ideas about masculinity and femininity are associated with dictatorships. They're associated with uh, uh, slavery. They're associated right. with uh, warfare. So so then we can begin to form even larger and because the great majority of humanity suffers from these reactionary ideas, mm-hmm. right-wing ideas. I guess I'm just trying to think about how gender was created and that before it became roles, social roles of dominance and subordination, isn't there a time when maybe women sat in a circle and breastfed their infants as the men were out doing something else and they were all weaving baskets together and that that could be considered gender because it's social, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of, you know, there, there there are indigenous societies in which women do different things than men do. And in fact, you know, women nurse and men don't. Although if you if you know the literature about breastfeeding um, in, in certain indigenous peoples, the older men would often nurse, you know, who, who couldn't go out and hunt. And, and, and they, they would be at home and they would often nurse infants because the women were more effective at going out and hunting. Because, you know, breast milk comes from... It, it, of course, it's more. Uh, it's easier when when a woman has given birth to create milk, but it comes. It, it's a response to sucking, so it will produce the ba- the baby sucking on the tit will produce milk. But yes, of course, and you know that women have a deep knowledge uh, from housewifery, but we shouldn't look at these categories as rigid. There, I you know I know men who. Uh, who are more involved with housekeeping and cooking than than many women I know. So, you know, making these sort of prejudicial prejudgments, is, that's what we want to get away from. And, you know, it, it, there's nothing wrong with having societies of women together nursing children, but if you rigidify that and make that into a should, you know, this is how women should behave, Right, you know, then then you you know it becomes repressive, and, right. and there's, there's usually another agenda behind it. As I said, you know, which is I, I believe gender originally our ideas of gender came from the building of empires and the need to have standing armies. In the period of Alexander the Great, boys were raised with women in the houses of the women or the tents of the women until they were about eight years old, and then they were turned over to the to the men. And these were different houses. The men and women were in different houses. And the women had this very sort of, they raised the boys as being very sensual, sensitive, emotionally attuned, gentleness, and kindness. And then they go over to the 
to the house of the men, and then they're being prepared to be a warrior. And so they're, they're ridiculed if they're too soft, if they're too sensual, and they play war games and beat each other up, and, and that's what makes them into a warrior. So if you read the Iliad, you see through the battle, when a man is not risking his life enough or being ferocious enough, he's called womanly. He's being too much like a woman. So these ideas of what a woman is and what a man is serve warfare. They serve the building of empire. So speak out, speak over, speak under, speak through the noise. Speak loud so I can hear you. I want to know you. I want to hear your real voice. I want to hear your real voice. Your real voice. Your real voice. Your real voice. Before we get to our interview segment with eco-feminist Lear Keith, I wanted to announce that the turf shirts are back and we are taking pre-orders. Hey Sally, how's it going sister? Not too well. I'm bummed about all the mud slinging online and tired of being called a turf all the time by trans activists. I know what you mean. The bullying has really gotten out of hand. I wonder what we could do about it. Hmm. Hey, I know. Have you heard about WLRN's new TERF t-shirts that say, if you call any woman a TERF, you are a misogynist? They're designed by Nidra Johnson and are pretty rad. We can take that term and turn it around. I could never wear a shirt like that. It would just cause them to come after me even more. I understand. But what about wearing it at Radfem gatherings around the house or, hey, I know. What about wearing it to a Radfem slumber party as your pajamas? Ooh, I want to go. I want to go to a Radfem slumber party and wear my TERF shirt. Yes. That sounds like it would be really cathartic and good for me to get one of those shirts and host a slumber party with my gal pals. Thanks for cheering me up, sister. How do I get a shirt? It's easy. When you donate $20 or more to WLRN for them to continue the awesome collective media work they're doing, just indicate the size and color of the shirt you'd like when you make your donation, and they'll send you the shirt after enough pre-orders have been received. Cool. How do I make my donation? Just go to the WLRN WordPress site and click on the T-shirts tab, and all the instructions are there. Thanks, sister. Can't wait to get my turf shirt and to support women's community radio. And now we are happy to play a segment of the interview Sekhmet Shiawal did with Lier Keith regarding her work around women and the environment. You earlier called yourself a radical feminist. Um, And I wonder if you think that there is a difference between radical feminism and eco-feminism. And if there is one, then which term do you more strongly identify with? Well, from my perspective, I think eco-feminism is kind of an offshoot of radical feminism. Um, I think that the radical feminist analysis is the one that's more central. Um, so I don't, I, I mean, I don't like disassociate from the, from the word ecofeminism, but I would absolutely call myself a radical feminist first. And I think the connection is, you know, the insight that radical feminists offer to this sort of global problem is the naming of men and male socialization. And by men, I don't mean biological males because none of us believe that this is, a, if it is biologically, 
you know, we're not essentialists. We don't think that men are born this way. We think that men are socialized to this. And, you know, that's what patriarchy is, 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 is how men are socialized um, to learn to dominate. Um, and that's really central to how masculinity is defined. So, you know, you've got this process that turns a child into a boy and then into a man. And being a man requires this psychology that's based on entitlement and emotional numbness. And ultimately, that's about a dichotomy of self and other. So they have to create this other category. Um, and there's actually like a name for this in the literature. Um, they call it a negative reference group. And that's how little boys are socialized. So there has to be this other group. And boys know they are boys because they are not this other despised thing. And of course, the other despised thing are always girls. There is no insult in this culture worse than some version of girl. Right, think about all the worst things you can call someone, and it's always assuming that they're female in some way. And often it's, you know, women's body parts that are worked into hate speech. Um, but once that psychological process is in place, then that category of, you know, other female, um, that can easily be filled by any group that a hierarchical society needs dominated or eradicated. So that's the basic thing. Once you can make that split in young male children, so the, I know I am you know, the human thing, and over there are the object things, um, you've kind of done your job. Because now anything can be inflicted on those other people. Um, so masculinity is essential to any militarized culture. Um, that's the psychology that's necessary in soldiers. Humans, it's actually really hard to get humans to kill each other. It actually creates a whole lot of trauma. What we know about uh, anyone who has survived, you know, battlefront conditions is that it's the soldiers who commit atrocities who are the most traumatized. Not the ones who endure atrocities, the ones who commit atrocities. It actually does hurt us to hurt other humans. And, you know, we have a lot of fail-safes in our psychology, you know, over millions of years of evolution to stop us from killing each other. It's a really hard thing to do. Um, the longbow, for instance, if you think, think about those giant bows, you know, from like the Middle Ages, mm -hmm. That was a, a huge invention in military technology because it meant that soldiers could stand really far away in relative terms and still kill each other. Um, it's much harder to get them to do it face to face. So if you can, the more distance you add, the easier it is to get soldiers to actually kill. And this has been a problem for militaries since the beginning. How do you get humans to overcome their natural repugnance to killing each other? Um, and we know the ways that, that militaries do this because they've studied it. They've been studying it since Rome. Like, how do we get our guys to kill people? Because the kill rate is generally really small. Um, it's really low. Um, so one way is, you know, the distance really helps. And hence machine guns, hence tanks, hence things like airplanes dropping bombs. If you can kill millions, millions of people and walk away with no guilt because you didn't see them, right? You can just tell yourself a story. And, uh, you know, it's not real. Whereas face-to-face, -face, it's a lot harder. And, you know, that's just our natural evolution saying, you don't actually want to kill each other. You need each other. And that's the thing that has to be overcome over and over again um, to get soldiers to kill. Well, this basic socialization does have to work for them. Because there's, in your brain, there's already this category of, well, not really human, not quite human. You know, it's a disgusting other that can be hurt or humiliated in some way. So you have to pursue or eradicate that natural human impulse to care for each other. And that's what masculine socialization is. It's essentially that process. Because patriarchy needs patriarchs, and militaristic cultures need soldiers. So 
this is going to be basic to male socialization until, you know, we change all of this. Um, so central to that is, of course, a violation imperative. So men become real men by breaking boundaries. Um, and so for the entitled psyche, the only reason that no exists is because it's a sexual thrill to push past it. And that is the real brilliance of patriarchy, is that they take acts of oppression and they make them seem normal and natural because it feels like sex to the men who commit them. And that is really the thing that radical feminists figured out. Um, it's an absolutely brilliant system, patriarchy, because it does feel natural. Um, anything that you can make sexual will then feel natural because it's you know, way deep in people's brains and bodies. Um, but it's not. You know, it's like any other thing that you create. You know, it can be just simple. Um, so anyway, I think that that was sort of the basic insight of radical feminism. It's all about this dominator mentality. And I'm actually going to read you a quote here. This is from Eric Fromm, and he's describing necrophilia. And he calls it the passion to transform that, that which is alive to something unalive, to destroy for the sake of destruction the exclusive interest in all that is purely mechanical. And that's it right there. If you're going to look at the last 10,000 years of patriarchy, the history of the planet, they have now reduced the planet essentially to that. It's almost dead. You know, we're vertebrate evolution has come to a halt because there's so little wild space now for creatures to actually inhabit. Right? I mean, I, it's like it's like all of evolution is just crashing down. There are now parts of China where there aren't any sexually reproducing plants anymore because all the pollinators are dead. So all the flowering plants are gone. And that's 450 million years of evolution. It's just been wiped off the face of the earth. So this is what we're facing now. This is the necrophilia that is at the center of patriarchy, that impulse to turn the living into the dead. And that's what they do to women, and that's what they're doing to the planet, and they get a sexual thrill from it, from it, which I think is a hard part for a lot of people to face. But we're, we're going to have to face how deep this has been socialized since then. Um, but I think that is the, the ultimate, the, the central insight that, that feminists had into the nature of future and into the nature of our same process. We've got, you know, a human subject is male. It is just at of dominating. Um, and the problem with this, of course, is that there's never a bottom. Like, usually with that kind of compulsion, with that kind of addiction, the person with the addiction will eventually, you know, be so miserable. You know, their lives will become unmanageable. And they hit bottom. And that's really the only hope, often, for somebody with an addiction. But in this case, it's the opposite. Because they never hit bottom. They're not the ones suffering. It's women who are suffering. It's the planet that's suffering. It's every other life one that's suffering. So they're not, you know, the harm isn't directly on them. They're getting a sexual swell. They're also being financially rewarded. Let's not forget the capitalist part of this. They're certainly being made rich off of this destruction. Um, but when they look out at the world of course, there's always another sentient self-willed being that will inflame his desire to control. The dog is barking. The dandelions are in the lawn. You know, there's a river somewhere that's not behaving the rules and is jumping the boundary of the dam. Um, you know, there's always something that's alive and that's saying, you can't control me. And that means he has to control it for more. So this is a never-ending spiral downward. Um, and it's 
it's really only going to end if one, we fight back and stop it, or two, you know, we're all dead. Because that's the necrophilic impulse right there. So that is what radical feminism taught me at age 16. Um, and certainly what I think most of the ego feminists understand as well, that it's the dominator mentality, it's based on masculinity, and, you know, ultimately it's completely entwined with male sexual violence because there is a sexual element where men have been socialized to find them sexually around Do you think that there can be such a thing as radical feminism that does not take the environment into account because it seems to me like you can be an environmentalist without being a feminist but i guess can you be a feminist without being an environmentalist (laughs) i think there's two ways to answer that question and one is analysis and the other is action so in terms of analysis i don't think it's possible to be one without the other because you have to see the whole picture. Um, if your analysis only stops at, you know, what men are doing to women and girls, you're missing half the story because they're doing it to everyone. <laughs> they're doing it to every last living creature. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of women are quite well aware of the amount of sexual abuse that, you know, men inflict on animals, for instance. But it really is the whole planet. You know, it's rivers, it's oceans, it's forests. Like every single boundary that can be broken, they do it because it's a thrill. And so, you know, it's the cultural sort of boundaries of indigenous people. Um, you know, it's, it's the biological boundaries of species. So now we have genetic engineering, transgenic salmon, and transgenic tomatoes, you know, where they're violating the boundaries of species that have evolved over millions of years. It just seems like an insane thing to do, but they can't get enough of it. And ultimately, you know, the, the boundary of matter itself, you know, we have the atom bomb, and nuclear power, and that stuff splitting the atoms. So, when you get to like the, the basic level of physical matter, they had to violate that too. Um, and I don't, so I don't think it's possible to have a radical feminist analysis and not continue to see the ways that men um, are trying to violate everything, trying to subdue everything that necrophilic impulse, the male sexuality under patriarchy. Um, I, I think you have to see that ultimately to be a radical feminist. Um, but having said that, I think it's absolutely honorable and important and probably crucial to, to at least have some of us just work on issues of violence against women, male violence against women. Because, you know, we can't all work on every single bad thing on the planet. Like, there have to be dedicated warriors that are just going to fight men on behalf of women and girls. And that is, you know, a perfectly legitimate thing to do with one life. Um so, because a lot of times, you know, especially in this sort of age of social media, it's like, oh, well, you care about this, therefore you don't care about that. And I think that kind of thing is ridiculous and utterly destructive to our movement. And, you know, I think whatever work you want to do in this world, you should do it because it needs to be done and it needs to be done now. Like, it's such a bad situation at this point. So, I think those are my two answers. Like, ideologically, I think you have to see the connection if you're really going to be a radical feminist. You can't just draw of an artificial line and say, well, this violation matters, but this doesn't. Like, you have to be a publisher. But ultimately, yes, we are going to need Amazon to only fight on behalf of women and girls if we're going to get anywhere in terms of stopping that violence. If the earth could fly away Could you see her flying Straight through space and time Leaving all humankind behind If she could fly away 
If she could fly away, so far away. If the earth could run away, could you see her gathering all the trees and plants, all the animals, all the birds and fowl, every creeping thing? They have never been her foe. Never harm her blessed soul If she could ride away If she could ride away So far away Then she'd be running for her life Or she'd be running for her life Running for her blessed life Or she'd be running for life Or she'd be running for life Running for her blessed life If the earth could up and walk away Could you see her calling for All the oceans and the seas All the rivers and the streams All the whales and fish Every reptile that exists They have never been her foe, never harmed her blessed soul. If she could walk away, if she could walk away, so far away, then she'd be running for her life. Oh, she'd be running for her life, running for her That was Battered Earth by Sweet Honey in the Rock. In our final segment of this month's podcast, Thistle shares her thoughts on the woman-earth connection and the parallel of patriarchal entitlement and domination over both. You are listening to WLRN, brought to you by the totally excellent radical feminists at Women's Women's Liberation Liberation Radio 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 News. News. Water is life. Water is life. Water is life. This popular slogan of the indigenous-led anti-mining movement in the Midwest is aimed at preserving and protecting the waters of the Great Lakes region. The saying takes some of its inspiration from the Ojibwe belief that women are the water protectors. The waters of the womb which sustain the life of the fetus before it is born are held by women. Born of water, cleansing, powerful, healing, changing, I am women are critical to the sustenance of life for all human beings because we are the childbearers and it is through the milk we produce that our infants can take in nutrients and grow. It is women's bodies that bleed, produce milk, and sustain life, and are viewed by male culture, like the earth, as something to control and exploit. Male philosophers like Aristotle and Plato view men as separate from nature, 
because nature is something to subordinate to their will, something dangerous that must be controlled, rather than something human beings are part of. Western male philosophy is dominated by the belief that nature is inferior to the superior pure intellect of the male mind. Similarly, these men see women as objects to be subordinated to the will of men and not as fellow human beings on an amazing adventure sustained by the functioning of nature. They also posit that there is a hierarchy of spirit and mind over matter, rather than viewing matter as crucial to spiritual experience. Without the brain, the cells organized in our skulls, there would be no mind. Mind and matter combine to create the human experience of embodiment and physical existence. Western philosophy looks down upon our physical nature and pronounces it inferior to a more pure idea of the spirit, unencumbered by the flesh. Since women give birth using our material bodies, we are associated with the flesh and the physicality of nature, instead of with the spirituality of the mind and the soul. Men then project their own carnal appetites onto women, so that women are blamed for luring and tempting men to impurities. In the book, Reweaving the World, The Emergence of Ecofeminism, a group of scholars from the 1980s and 90s put forth essays grappling with the ideas and philosophies of Western civilization that have put all of life at risk of annihilation due to the disconnect promoted by men who see themselves as superior to women and to nature. Susan Griffin, Ecofeminist poetic scholar says in her essay called Curves Along the Road, quote, In splitting spirit from matter, human consciousness is divided. We think of intellectual knowledge as separate from sensual knowledge and the spirit as belonging to a different realm entirely. In this way, our experience of the world is fragmented. And because of this, we see fragments. Modern science, which in one way asserts the primacy of material knowledge, in a more subtle way preserves the same dividedness that preceded it. Using the scientific method, scientists attempt to be above sensual experience. But instead of being above experience, they are perceiving partially they see the pieces clearly, with no feeling for the whole." Ecofeminism is a reply to Western male philosophy that fragments experience and puts men above nature and women. Ecofeminism views the relationships women have with our natural surroundings as integral to the survival of the species. Ecofeminism views women as the important half of our species that we are. Every person in this world gestated for nine months in a woman's body surrounded by the waters of life. It is this fact that drives ecofeminists to pursue and explore the relationships women share with nature, how women relate with all of life. 
ecofeminism exists to create a culture that embodies and respects nature's cycles of life and death. As Western so-called civilization spreads in corporate form, hell-bent on exploiting the natural world for its precious metals and resources, so too does it exploit women and women's bodies for our resources as, quote, sex workers, domestic servants, child rearers, and exploitable laborers of any sort. Some of us do survive this systemic misogyny, while other women face far less exploitation on account of our race, education, or generational wealth. Black women and children and other women and children of color are disproportionately affected by exploitation and environmental racism. As the resource extraction industries rape and enslave the natural world, so too does male civilization rape and enslave women. Male society views women as objects that exist only in our relationship to and utilization by men. It is our duty as radical feminists to stand against misogynist racist exploitation of the planet and every being on it. As Zan Joy, author of, quote, But What Can I Do? says, Let's grab our privilege like a bat and swing it, unquote. And let's do that at every single force that harms any one of us. But sisters, my heart is heavy as I write this. Knowing the years of experience I worked in the local environmental movement and how women are treated and looked at within it, my heart is heavy also because it feels like it's too late. This summer, record high temperatures have created deadly heat waves in places like the southwestern part of the United States, in California, Canada, Sweden, Japan, and in South Korea. Not only is climate change real, but women continue to be subordinated to male rule and patterns of violence and mismanagement of the Earth's natural resources continue on a daily basis. We are collectively so far out of balance with nature as a species that unless women can rise up and take the reins of power from men and begin wielding it in ways that are restorative, I am afraid that we will become extinct within the next hundred years or so, or maybe even sooner. I wish I had a message of hope, but the reality is my message is one of despair, both on a personal level and on a global level. What to do in this predicament? As Zan Joy states, we must grab our privilege like a bat and swing it, which is what we're trying to do here at WLRN. But is it too late? Recycling, contributing to community gardens, eating low on the food chain, writing letters to politicians and corporations to influence policy, gathering and marching in the streets, taking direct action and staging protests at the sites of environmental destruction. All of these things are good and right, but is it enough? I guess my answer to that question is our efforts are not enough, but that there's a pride and satisfaction in knowing we did what we could with what we were given. I would rather die standing than on my knees. I would rather die knowing I cared for and tried to turn this earth ship around and have it sail a different and sustainable course. There is love, beauty, and pleasure in the struggle for earth liberation, and much to be appreciated and learned from indigenous people who still fight against genocide and the rape of the earth. 
I stand with the women of Standing Rock. I stand with the earth warriors and water protectors. I stand until I am knocked down and will never submit to the woman and earth-hating forces of Western civilization. Sisters, won't you join me? Let's love, dance, and spin together as the future unfolds in all of its ugliness and horror and in all of its vast mysteries and possibilities. Put the spinach on the bottom, cause that's where it starts. Put the Kalamata olives and the artichoke hearts with your flaxseed waxing up in here. Vinaigrette, get it wet, all set to disappear. Yeah, word to the shrooms, tell them come on down. Sprinkle crunchy little gluten-free noodles around. Like poetry, waiting in your salad bowl. Pretty local grown veggies make it good for the soul. Cucumbers, baby bean sprouts, avocado. Gets a shout out and get your pomegranate seeds sprinkled on the top. Uh, turn up. The beats so that salad goes pop. Ba -ba -ba beats in my salad, beats in my salad. I got beats in my salad, beats in my salad. I got beats in my salad, beats in my salad. I got beats, 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 beats. Those are natural foods in the local co-op. The salad bar is banging, yo, we just don't stop. Check out the fresh garlic and the edamame. It's a party on my plate, make my body say hey. You know we rock stars and we on the road. Don't want no fast food, no truck stop. We're in Trader Joe's or some Whole Foods where the people care. About corn syrup, they don't sell it there. The farmer's market might be even the best. Freshest local produce, organic and blessed. If you know where you're going, look them up online. They make a salsa, yum, 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 every time. Beats in my salad, beats in my salad. I got beats in my salad, beats in my salad. I got beats in my salad, beats in my salad. I got beats, 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 beats. Think twice about the can sitting on your shelf. Choose the farm grown berries that you picked yourself. But take the kids to the market. And get them some Cause our babies need to know where that food comes from Skip the trip to the super center up all night You know the little local market's gonna do it up right We got no food if we got no farm So show the farmer some love when you go to get your salad Are we shopping in the sun in the market stalls Where the fruits and the veggies really got it going on I'm talking so many colors it'll make your head spin First on soup and salad with your mama and them You got to holla at your girls, holla at your boys Everybody bringing over an ingredient of choice Cause it's tribe and community that don't stop Share the food, share the wealth, keep the love on top That was Beats in My Salad by Big Mancino, which brings us to the end of WLRN's 28th edition on Women in the Environment. Thanks so much to Susan Griffin and Lear Keith for their time and tireless work towards sustainability. And thank you, dear listener, for supporting independent women's media. We always release our handcrafted podcast the first Thursday of every month. Tune in Thursday, September 6th for our 29th edition on Women in the Labor Movement, just in time for Labor Day. Until then, I'm Segment Shiawal. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can send us an email to wlrnewscontact at gmail.com. Are you interested in joining our team at WLRN? We're looking for more women to conduct interviews, write articles, do editing, transcribing, research, and more. Go to the Volunteer for WLRN tab on our WordPress site to find instructions for how to apply. This is Natasha, signing off. Follow us on Facebook. 
Twitter and Tumblr, where we keep our followers up to date on the latest feminist content and women's headlines. Find our Facebook page titled Women's Liberation Radio News and our Twitter at RadFemRadio. Our Tumblr is Women's Liberation Radio News. In addition, check out our YouTube channel, where we are slowly releasing videos of world-famous feminists speaking at WIMCON 2018 in Chicago. That's right, WLRN and Feminist Friends organized the Women in Media Conference that took place June 15th through 17th in Chicago without incident. There were no trans activist and anti-feminist attacks, largely because we kept it to ourselves. In this day and age of the internet, over 300 tech-savvy internet-surfing women keeping a conference in Chicago under wraps demonstrates an exciting level of trust among radical feminist women we hope continues into the future. I'm Thistle Pedersen. Thanks for staying tuned. We are 100% volunteer-powered, independent, radical feminist radio, and we thank you for listening. This is Maya signing off from our August 2018 28th edition podcast dedicated to women and the environment. Donate to WLRN by going to our website, wlrnmedia.wordpress.com and clicking the donate button. While you're there, check out our merch tab for awesome posters, t-shirts, and more. This is Julia. Thanks for listening. And this is Jenna. Your Women's Liberation Radio News podcast is always produced in love and solidarity. Thank you for supporting women's independent media. And then after